Before we get started, I just want to give listeners a heads up that this episode of Showrunners will feature explicit language and discussions of mature content, including sexual assault and suicide. Even before Margaret Atwood's 1985 dystopian novel The Handmaid's Tale spiked on the bestseller charts following the election of President Donald Trump, Bruce Miller was working to adapt the book as a new TV series for Hulu. On a Friday afternoon, he sent Margaret Atwood, or as he calls her... Uh, you mean Canadian national treasure Margaret Atwood? The first two scripts. That was the worst weekend of my life. Why? Because she was reading my scripts as Margaret Atwood. What do you think? I was like, I didn't go to the bathroom all weekend. It was horrible. She loved them, but I didn't know that till, till Monday. I mean, it was terrifying. Bruce Miller is the showrunner and screenwriter for The Handmaid's Tale, a chilling drama starring Elizabeth Moss and Alexis Bledel that takes viewers into a fictional version of our own modern world where religious extremists have taken over the country. Due to a sharp decline in fertility rates, women who are capable of carrying children are labeled handmaids and assigned to houses where infertile couples in power reside. There they are ceremoniously raped in the hopes that the handmaid will bear a child for their assigned commander and his wife. Needless to say, The Handmaid's Tale is a brutal look at how belief systems can be militarized and serves to remind its audience that thinking, it can't happen here, is a dangerous mindset. In this episode of Showrunners, Bruce Miller tells us about why he made some major changes from the original book, what it was like casting the powerhouse women on the show, and how he first became a fan of Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale. I read the book actually when I was in college um, in a new fiction class, which tells you how long ago I was in college. And it was one of those books that really, I thought, taught me how to write. It was beautifully written, but the plot was great. And, was, and over the years, I read it a bunch of times. I'm pretty dyslexic, so I read books over and over again. I don't know whether that's all dyslexics, but I read it, you know, over the years and always enjoyed it. Found it really kind of relevant no matter when I was reading it. And then when I started to get into television, I thought that'd make a good TV show. But someone owned the rights to it, so I thought I would just watch it as a fan. You know, I was excited that it was coming out. They were going to make it at Showtime, and eventually through hitches and woes, it turned out uh, that it ended up at Hulu. The original writer was Eileen Jacob, who does Empire, and uh, she was busy doing Empire, and so they were looking for someone to write a pilot, write a new pilot, and, and to run the show. But they were, I think, wisely looking for a woman. And I was all for that, except I wanted the job. I mean, I thought that I was completely on the right track. I was 100% behind it, but I had to wait patiently until I got my chance to go in there and speak to them about it. And I went in and I just kind of presented what, you know, what you do is you go in and you pitch out what you think the show's going to be like and kind of the parameters and things like that, big picture stuff. And they, I fooled them. They bought it. And uh, so then I wrote the first three and we got uh, Elizabeth Moss on she board. Was the first person, yeah, she yeah. was the first person. I, you know, it's one of those projects that you're kind of make or break because it's so central around one character that, you know, that's what we were thinking about and looking for. And and she got to read a, a few scripts, but not just one, which is good for her as well. And I know she had some trepidation. She, you know, didn't particularly want to dive into another TV series. And she's been on a bunch of shows that had a lot of success. And so we all kind of talked to each other. And at that point, Lizzie was in Australia making Top of the Lake, the second season. And I was in Los Angeles. And I think there was like one hour a week where we were both awake because she was working these really long hours and, I, you know, I was working and then all of a sudden there would just be this, like, 
you know, 20 minutes where it was Tuesday there and Friday, whatever. It was so complicated. And uh, so we got this little window of time to talk every week. And we got to know each other enough that she felt comfortable doing it. We actually never met. So, so she was the first piece. First piece of the casting puzzle. And when you make a, when you make a pilot, you're, it, it is very much like uh, you're pulling in a lot of different pieces from a lot of different directions. You know, you're trying to get a, the right director for the pilot. You're trying to get the right pieces of performers. And once you get Lizzie, uh, Lizzie Moss, then, then that you, you kind of set a tone for what you're looking for. And so it's easier to get certain other people. The show has a fairly large cast. They all need to be really good. It's hard stuff. And also, it's kind of strange because you need people who are really good, but people who are not unhappy being in one or two scenes an episode. The key there is just not to lie to them and say it's going to be a much bigger role than, it's, than, than it is. And the people that just came in to audition were, it was amazing who, who, who came in. Um, and we pulled together the cast kind of little bit at a time. I don't remember what exactly the order was. And uh, meanwhile, you know, we're writing scripts. Meanwhile, we're, we're hiring, looking at directors. And Lizzie had worked with Reed Murano before. And so we talked to Reed on, we did do Skype. We talked FaceTime with, with Reed. She was fantastic, but it worked out spectacularly. Um, and then you start hiring kind of the heads of the departments. And in this case, that was very important. So our production designer, was a woman named Julie Berghoff, who just did an astonishing job. And uh, Anne Crabtree, who does Westworld and did Masters of Sex, did our, our wardrobe and designed the handmade costumes and the wife costumes. And Colin Watkinson, our, our director of photography, uh, that team really put together the color scheme for the show. And I've never been on a show where there's been more discussion about... Because in, in the world of handmaids, People are divided by color. It's very striking. Very striking. So you have to be very careful. I mean, if you pick the wrong red for Lizzie, she's stuck with it. And so we pulled all those pieces together. Um, and then it kind of, the ball starts rolling on its own towards, yeah. towards production or towards you. How involved, if at all, was Margaret Atwood from the beginning? Or at what point was she brought into the... For the show, she had been involved in the project with the, with the previous writer okay. and with the previous incarnation. And, you know, when I got the project, we spoke via email. And then I, as I was writing and as I was thinking about things that I might change in the, in the world, you know, the book versus the television show and how I might try to update it, she, we had lots of discussions about that. So she was very involved. It was, it, she's in kind of a unique position because, you know, I've adapted a lot of books. Usually when you're adapting a book, the book stinks. You're just taking one cool part of it out and saying, oh, I really want to do this. But oftentimes there's lots of stuff that you want to throw. That's not the case here. I was working very hard to recreate the experience of the book on television. And also when you do something that's a classic, usually the author is long gone. So we were in a very good position of having a book I wanted to emulate and a person to speak to about emulating it. So it was a great benefit to me. But also this book's been adapted a lot of times before it was a it was an opera, it was a, a, ballet. a ballet, it was a play, it was all sorts of it was a movie, it was all sorts of things. So in fact, you know, she was an expert on having this adapted. Right. She had so she had 
She knew how to kind of give it over. So she, in fact, had so much more experience in terms of giving over her work than I did, you know, trying to make her change things or ask her to change things for her shooting, uh, that, you know, things that I thought would be difficult conversations. She was like, sure, whatever you think is going to work on TV. Uh, and then when I finished the first two scripts, I sent them to her. And that was the worst weekend of my life. Why? Because she was reading my scripts as Margaret Atwood. What do you think? I was like, I didn't go to the bathroom all weekend. It was horrible. She loved them, but I didn't know that till till Monday. I mean, it was terrifying. Right. What was it like when you met her face to face for the first time? Uh, you mean Canadian National Treasure Margaret Atwood? I met her in Toronto, and she is just lovely to speak with. She's so intelligent and so kind of thoughtful about the stuff that we were talking about in terms of making a television show, but also she had terrific recall of what she was thinking when she wrote the book, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, she's written so many books, and this was probably 35, 40 years ago, she sat down to start typing. I mean, and the questions I had as a writer were so picky. Why did you choose the King James Bible, not the Geneva Bible? Because the Puritans used the Geneva Bible. Why didn't you pick that? And she remembered all of these decisions that she made and why. And I was, I was, I can't remember why I made decisions on shows I was on last year. So that was incredibly helpful. But it was, it, I mean, I was very nervous to meet her face to face. I thought I would, you know, blow it and say something wrong. But she was very relaxed. And, and over time, she's come into the editing room with me. You know, we, we show her episodes. You know, she's screened episodes and I go with her to those. And, and she's been so welcoming and she really likes it. She loves the way the show's turning out and loves the conversations that I bring her, which are, okay, what if this thing, what, you know, what this one sentence that's in your book, let's take that and if I took that and made an episode out of it, it would turn out like this. What, what do you think? Is that kind of what you were thinking? So one example of, I think, what you're referring to of like pulling out and expanding is Off Glen, uh, like her entire storyline, which we don't see too much of what happens to her in the book, whereas... In the book, you don't know that she was formerly Rory Gilmore. We did toy with the idea of having her backstory be... She was not, she was a, you know, child actor, and she was on a show. Really? Pop. Yeah, because, you know, everybody has a story. Yeah. yeah it would have been really funny. But so that's, like, one of the things that you have changed and adapted. And you also brought a lot more, um, like, modern references into the story. Can you talk about sort of the decision to do that and... Talking with Margaret Atwood about it? Yeah. um, Across the board, I think we wanted to just make sure that it felt like now because it's scarier. I mean, I look at the show really as kind of a thriller. And anything that detracts from the scariness and things that detract from the scariness are they're all walking around in funny costumes. And so everything else has to be very grounded and real because you've got a few things that are really wackadoodle. So we wanted to update it or make it current in any way we could. And that... At first, there's just the normal references that people make have changed over time. And the normal Uber, Uber, there's a reference to Uber, there's a reference to Tinder, yeah, Craigslist, I think. Yeah, Um, yeah, Craigslist. Um, And we didn't try to throw those in. We just tried to have what normal people would think about and talk about, but not avoid those things. And that played into a million decisions, the decision to make the world not an all-white world. Her, the world in, of Gilead in the book is a totally white world. They've sent everybody of color away. But in the 30-something years since she wrote it, 
a couple of things that happened, and this was all just kind of my thinking, not going to the Census Bureau and finding out whether all these things were true, but my sense was that the evangelical movement had gotten a little more diverse, you know, in terms of race. And so that there would be more diversity within a group like the Sons of Jacob, which is the group of, of very religious people who take over. But also interracial adoption has become so much, because of international adoption, becomes so much more common. And so I think the discomfort of raising a child of a different race has almost vanished in our lifetime. So the show takes place now, 20, you know, 2017. And so the people have the racial attitudes people have now, but it's couched and you should always, you always remember at some point early on, way before Gilead happened, the, the birth rate fell to the point where everybody lost their shit. I mean, where it got really, really, really scary. So a lot of the decisions, a lot of the way the world is now, like for example, there's no cell phones. The reason there's no cell phones is because there is a theory that you know cell phones can cause infertility. I think anything you read in the deepest, darkest corner of the internet as possibly causing diminished sperm count or infertility, they would completely adopt. So, because if the birth rate all of a sudden fell 95%, they would cut down every cell tower the next day. I mean, they wouldn't care. And you know, you wouldn't care, nobody would care. So things like that, the world that became Gilead was slightly different. In this day and age, what's the difference between making a TV show about racism and making a racist TV show? It's a distinction without a difference. They look the same on television. And in addition, Samira came in and auditioned for Moira, and she was so fucking great that it was like, how do I not hire Samira? You know, so after that, it was like, I got to figure out a way, you know, to have Samira be Moira. She was Moira. Well, this was something else I was going to talk about now that we're talking about names and them in the past, was the choice to name... Elizabeth Moth's character, Alfred June, which I was just reading. Uh, Margaret Atwood just wrote a New York Times piece, and she mentions that she never intended for that to be her name, but it was something that fans had picked up on and started kind of theorizing and, like, adding to the Wikipedia page, and they were like, oh, I'm pretty sure that her real name was June. Uh, I, you know, I had read a long time ago some it, people had theories about what her name was and i and there's a scene in the book where people exchange names and the one name that isn't accounted for was june um and i had read that so long ago that i had always assumed her name was june and so i didn't really think about it i just thought the character's name was june it, in the movie it wasn't and in the script that eileen chaikin wrote it wasn't but i just thought that was her name so i just used it not knowing whether Margaret intended it or not. I think Margaret intended her not to have a name. I mean, she wasn't, she, her name was Alfred. It's funny how that happens, that it can kind of like morph out of the control of the yeah. person who originally. Yeah, whoever originally came up with the theory. But the fan detective work did lead me to that. But it was so long ago, so long before I started the project that it was ingrained and I didn't really think about it when I named her that. And neither did Lizzie. And then people started going, why is her name June? You know, but I felt like it is in the first episode and it's a very, it's an important thing that she has a name because part of the show is that she's not going to let that go. Um, you know, she is strong and stubborn even though she has to be on the outside kind of uh, content looking and silent and meek and keeping a hold of her identity uh, was such an important part that it kind of needed the name to do it. It is a show where the names are like a complete pain in the ass yeah. because everybody's name changes. 
you know, all, you know, off Glenn becomes off of Stephen and, or, you know, of, yeah. And then she becomes Emily. And then, you know, so, you know, it's a nightmare when you're writing scripts because there was an off Glenn and now there's off Glenn too. And unfortunately we, we talked a lot about the old Offred who was Offred before Offred. And she got the unfortunate nickname of off dead because she was, you know, so, you know, you have to have some way to identify them all the same name. And then we came up against, when they were in the Red Center, what did they call them? Because in the book, they never call them anything, really. But we just decided to use their real names, that Aunt Lydia uses the real names. Otherwise, what do you use in the car between assignments when you're driving someone from one house to another where they're going to be handmade? Because they're of nobody for that time. And it also added a little bit of kind of interesting respect that Aunt Lydia has for the, for the girls, which grows over uh, time. Uh, you know, a, a show is, is only as good as its bad guys. Yeah. Speaking of Aunt Lydia, Ann Dowd is phenomenal. Uh, Ann Dowd was the first person after Lizzie that we cast. I've always thought she's... When I look at actors, a lot of what I look at is range more than anything else. You know, you look at things that they've done and, and you look at how far apart they are from each other and the further they are apart and the more convincing they are, even though they're far apart, that really shows you, ah, that's someone who can do this or this or this. And, and uh, I mean, Ann Dowd's astonishing. And she plays Aunt Lydia, who is the head of the Red Center where the initiates go to become handmaids to learn all the fun facts about what their wife is going to be like as, as a handmaid. She is incredibly tough on them. I don't think she would use the word cruel. I think she is, uh, you know, she, she takes her, her job very, very seriously. She is going to make sure these girls don't get killed by the wives once they're assigned. So she's going to make sure that they're obedient. She believes that this is, you know, the way to save the world. She believes she's doing God's work. It's duty. And I don't think she's particularly happy about the violence side of it. She doesn't take, I mean, when you see, she doesn't really take very much pleasure in it. And as you move along, you see that she cares about the success of these girls so much. There's like a certain kind of love there. But she did scare the shit out of the extras who were also playing handmaids because, yeah, because she yelled at them and would bang her. St- it was great. She's also the most lovely, gentle, nice woman you've ever met. So it was a great combination. But she, I mean, she scared the shit out of me. She's, she was a, a, a completely, completely amazing from the very first time she was, you know, on set. Another small change, but one that I noticed kind of right away was uh, Serena Joy and how you aged her down for the show. So what was that decision? That was another big decision and certainly something I talked extensively with Margaret about. Mm-hmm. Yes, Serena Joy in our story is younger. And I, long before we started casting, I was thinking about that when I saw the original movie, it was Faye Dunaway, who was quite old at that point. And in the book, they don't name the age of Serena Joy, but she's seemingly elderly. She has a cane. She's got arthritis. She's got gray hair. And I felt like in a novel, the dynamic between Serena Joy and, and Alfred, there's only so much of it that you're going to see. But in a TV show, it's going to go on and on and on, hopefully for years. And the element that was missing for me was the direct competition between the two women. Because in the, with an older Serena Joy, she is, wants something so badly 
that she felt like she should have had in the past. But she's past that point now. She's older, and she's using this young woman to try to get that. I felt that it was a more active dynamic if Serena Joy felt like this person was usurping her role, not only as you know, the reproductive object of the house, but some of this gradually taking away the wifely duties, the, the, the intimate duties, the romantic sexual duties. So for that reason, I thought if Serena Joy wishes she was off right now, if she wants a child now and she's unable to have a child, it, it makes the stakes higher and it makes their conflict yeah. greater. And it makes a lot of sense, like what you said about the fact that they could theoretically be friends in an alternate timeline because having them closer to the same age, it does heighten that sense of, like you said, competition. It makes it almost harder for both of them because they have someone in the house who's kind of a peer and they have, so you're even lonelier because you have that person who's there, but the relationship is completely intractable. And there's so many moments where they're together. There's moments where they're out in the garden working. There's there's all sorts of stuff you see where you just think, oh God, just two clicks of the dial and they would be sitting out there chatting. Because Serena Joy is a very unpredictable character um, in that, you know, one minute she's practically embracing Alfred and seems so she grateful and devoted to her. And yes. then, right, she turns on a dime. And- uh, yes, and I, and we talked, Yvonne and I talked quite a bit about um, one of the, the best things about being, you know, a showrunner, writer, and a producer is that you get to uh, talk talk to the actors about the whole character, not just that episode, because usually the directors are only there for a single episode. We did blocks of two, but so you can talk very long-term and very big picture and have long conversations uh, with it. And, you know, Yvonne and I talked a lot about, you know, a, a lot about that, basically the same upbringing, I have the same values, and yet I seem to be so far apart from you politically. The other thing about one of the reasons you might not recognize Yvonne and it's something we did with everybody, is nobody wears any makeup in Gilead um, because they wouldn't. Um, And uh, they wear a tiny bit because on television, if you wear nothing, you look like we're trying to make you look sick. You know, it it doesn't really work. And also because there's a consistency when you move from outside to inside or you change, you know, lighting lighting instruments, they look so different you wouldn't be able to recognize them. When when TV went to HD... um, we had tons of makeup problems. You could see everybody's makeup. I mean, you guys, when you watch a show in HD that wasn't really shot in HD, you could just see it everywhere. You could see um, what it's covering. You see everything. So eventually makeup adjusted and they figured out how to do that. And, you know, those are very, they're very bright people in that department and they figured it out. We, we shoot the show in 4K, which is more resolution than, than 1080p. And our decision to have them not wear any makeup didn't have anything to do with that. It was it was totally a what would it be like in Gilead? You know, the the wives dye their hair, but you know we do it so that it looks like it's one of a few natural dyes that are available. They don't wear, of course, a handmaid would not wear any makeup, you know, ever. Handmaids don't generally wear glasses. Why would you bother if they're not going to read? Why would you give them glasses? You know, the, there's all of these things that we have, but the makeup thing was fascinating because. Our show, in addition to having a paucity of dialogue and in addition to having the camera right up in everybody's grill and no makeup, all of a sudden we opened up 30% of the real estate of these actors' faces Mm -hmm. because there's nothing covering them 
and you're right up close to them. And it changed the performances amazingly because Lizzie, I mean, I feel like you can see every thought that she has go across her face. Just, you know, even when she doesn't want it to, you can see it flick across her face. And Yvonne's the same way, except she wants it even less to show. She's like standing on it saying, please don't show, but you can see it, you know, the kind of tremors under her skin, which you don't see if you're covering everything up with makeup. It was not something I thought of before, but it's been a huge, huge advantage. It seems like we've just kind of, you know, freed up these actors to to use a whole other set of muscles and tools that normally would be literally hidden. Right, the, the close-ups are also very striking, especially Alexis Bledel's. But her face is, you know, beautiful, and she's, you know, she's... I don't know how old Alexis is, but she, you know, had been playing a teenager for so long. You know, they have to put a lot of makeup on her to make her look like a teenager. And she has the most beautiful face. And we took it all off. And she looks, I think she looks spectacular. Um, And certainly it's so interesting to see her act like that without that wall between you. I want to talk about being a showrunner in general. So part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is because I feel like that term is sort of coming to the surface in a way that it maybe wasn't 10, 15 years ago. So how would you describe your job as a showrunner to someone who doesn't totally know what that is? My job as a showrunner is I am entirely responsible for the sh- for the television show. Um, you know, as, a, as an enterprise, I hire, you know, Everybody, I'm responsible for it coming out. So all the different departments that you have, whether it's the post-production department has a producer at the top of it. There's a what's called a line producer who's in charge of the physical production. There are, you know, department heads in every department, in, you know, in production design. All those people work for me. Um, and I hire all those people. Of course, I also am employed by the studio. And so... When you make decisions, you have to go to them. But as far as the show goes, for better or worse, it's kind of a fiefdom. Every every script, every word goes through my computer before it goes out. So I wrote four episodes out of the 10 this year. And the way it works is we have a writing staff of people. We talk about episodes and then we figure them out together and then send off individual writers to write them. But I'm in charge of that process of breaking in. I make I make... Every story decision and every prop is my decision. Every costume is my decision. Every casting piece is my decision. And that's because in television, the directors come and go and they don't know the arc of the show. So I, I'm in charge of kind of plotting the whole season. And when a director is on set, I'm that director's boss, but it's the director's set. It requires a lot of different kinds of skills, not necessarily all the skills you'd acquire being a writer. Showrunners are generally writers. So the system in Hollywood is nicely that you learn from the showrunners you work for. And it's a kind of a mentorship thing. Um, And, you know, I was fired from lots of jobs, so I met lots of different showrunners, which ended up helping me quite a bit. So, you know, if the four jobs when you're making a TV show are, you know, writing scripts, shooting them, post-production, and prep, you know, preparing for the next episode. Those are four full-time jobs that I do, that I have to do. So I'm always doing all four of those 
basically it's the the last creative decision. It's the creative yes or no decision for everything from which paper cup are you going to use to are you going to send it to Lizzie Moss. It is as encompassing a creative job uh, as there can be in television. Mm-hmm. So since hiring is such a big part of what you do, what do you look for when you are hiring people? Are there certain qualities that you're more attracted to in delegating? And uh, Yeah, I mean, I like to hire people who are, first of all, I like to hire people who are much better at what they do than I would be at what they do. So when I hire writers, I try to fill a room with writers who are better than I am. I like, generally, I want people who are going to take it upon themselves to be independent storytellers in every single department. So thinking about the characters, thinking about the story, and telling the story, serving the story. So in, in for example, in Wardrobe, when you're dressing a handmaid, Anne Crabtree thought a lot about, well, where do these clothes come from? They're designed probably by a man, because women don't work. So they're designed and sewn by men for women. They're also, the, the dresses the handmaids wear in The Handmaid's Tale are built so that you can be pregnant. They have a panel in front. So all of them are basically maternity clothes, although you don't really notice it. And the material has hooks and eyes. It doesn't have any zippers. All of these things, the the shoes, um, because they're sharp and because you could hurt yourself. And the shoes, the boots don't have any laces. Everything in their like room in their life is designed so that they can't possibly commit suicide. Yeah or hurt themselves in other ways. But what I look for is I look for someone who is stubborn, you know, has a particular creative idea of ways to do things that are going to enhance my creative ideas. And also I always look for kind of a common language. I don't try to talk to a customer about costumes. I don't know anything about costumes. I talk about characters and emotions. I I say, you know, I said, I want all the handmaids, their clothes, and, and you saw them all, they're a little bit different. I don't know if you noticed, but some have, they wear these OB belts, like an OB is like a Japanese belt. Some are thicker, some are thinner, some don't wear them at all. They have little things. And that was because I wanted them to express themselves. People express themselves through their clothes. In the concentration camps, people express themselves through their clothes. It's one of the things that you just can't take away from people. It's hard to breed it out of them. So here they were doing it. And that's what Anne came up with, the way that that's done. But she also kind of came up with a whole theory of, you know, there's later in the season, she's like in a red sweatshirt. She's, you know, they wear scarves and gloves as it gets colder. And so all of those pieces, you want everybody to be involved as a storyteller. I I have a no douchebag policy. Um, (laughs) How do you identify Uh, douchebags. <laughs> well, luckily in, in our business, one of the other things about showrunners is they are generally very generous with each other and honest with each other about references. So because it's so it's so immobilizing to hire the wrong person, someone who just doesn't work out, that we call each other and people really, you get very honest opinions, even from showrunners you don't know personally. Um, yeah, about people that you've worked with. And, it, you know, it's, it's even for excellent people, so there's, there's always pluses and minuses. So that's how you, you know, but you also say, I have a no douchebag policy, to the casting people. And our cast is lovely, smart, and involved, and and positive. And a lot of that comes from Lizzie setting a great example. She's incredibly positive on the set. But there are no jerks. Because honestly, you know, if you send me a bad actor, okay, I can cut around a bad actor. You send me an asshole, the whole process stops. You know, everybody's walking on eggshells. It's all constipated. And the 
problem is everybody else's performance gets worse except that person. Everybody else is feeling really uncomfortable. So it's totally unfair in addition. And I just don't, I mean, I'm not, I know plenty of actors who are lovely people, and I don't think it's worth it to hire people who are difficult and jerky. I don't think it's part of the process. Is that something else that other showrunners will warn you about? Like, not only crew that they've hired, but actors that they've hired? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, actors, directors. And, you know, there's lots of other factors that go into hiring someone. But I spoke to our casting people, and I said, I really don't want to hire anybody who's going to constipate the process. And none of the people who even auditioned had bad reputations. Yeah, you, you, you write, and you get better at writing, you get better at writing, and, and this particular show, I had a, you know, this is the best, the hardest and the best stuff I've ever written. And a lot of that is because of the source material, a lot of it is because playing Can You Top This with Lizzie is the best game ever, like saying, you could do that, I wonder if you could do this, um, which is really wonderful. But then, you know, you become a showrunner, and at some point, very early on, they put down a pile of papers about an inch and a half thick, that's the budget, and on the cover of it is a piece of paper with all these lines and all these people have signed it. People who you've names you know but you've never met, you know, like heads of studios and stuff, and there's a line for your name. And you're signing and saying, if this $80 million doesn't make a TV show, you are responsible, person signing your name. That's not writing. That doesn't, well, it is writing, but it's, uh, it's not writing like I was writing. And so that all of a sudden becomes your job, to be responsible for the entire show, for delivering a show. You know, and also as a writer, sometimes you never go into post. You never talk to actors. Some, sometimes those things never happen. Uh, you know, on some shows, they don't, writers don't even go to the set either because it's the way the showrunner likes to do it or they're shooting in Tasmania or what have you. Um, you were just talking about the challenge of kind of adapting this particular book. Was there a particular scene or anything specific that you felt like you came up against and it was a little harder to translate that into the show? The, the hardest thing, the thing I thought the most about was the voiceover. Um, the movie didn't have voiceover and the original script I read didn't have voiceover. I, I felt like it was essential. The whole book is voiceover. And it's half of her personality. You know, it's, it's, it's June. It's June and Offred are kind of the two main characters, and they're always, in comp- they're always in conflict. You know, Offred is saying, let's just stay calm and survive. And June is saying, don't let him fucking talk to you like that. And then Offred is saying, quiet, you're going to get me killed. And so, the, you know, the conflict between the two of them is really the center of the show. And, you know, without the inner voice, the outside person is so difficult to read, um, so impossible to tell what they're thinking and feeling. So trying to make the voiceover, because the book is all voiceover, trying to pick and choose which elements I was going to use, and then trying to adapt that style to stuff that isn't in the book that I had to write. I mean, 90% of the voiceover is close to something in the book or not close at all, but it's something I wrote. Only about 10% lasted. That was exactly what Margaret wrote. Although we, you know, we tried, you, you always start using those as your basis and then you adjust our, you know, our character sounds a little more modern. She swears a little more. She's funnier. Yeah. There's a lot of comedic moments that come from her voiceover in play with whoever else is in the room that she's looking at. And there were tons, tons more of that. There's one point where she goes in to see the commander and he says, "I, I know this must seem a little strange. And there's this long pause. And Lizzie says, 
a little. And before, there was this whole thing where she was like, yeah, no shit. I mean, like the whole world is so strange. So it helps us play with the absurdity of the situation. So you never forget that, you, you know, you always want to think that Alfred might turn to the camera and go, really? This is my Thursday? This is what I'm, I'm doing? I could, you know, go for a run, go home and cook dinner, and instead I'm lying between this woman's legs? This is the weirdest fucking thing I've ever, yeah. So you don't ever want to lose that. And you get that with the voiceover. Can we expect that this first season encompasses just the book and we might go beyond that at some point we follow certain things about the the book in the first season and we divert a lot you know a lot of times we take things that are you know there's a sentence in the book about about that there were protests when the laws were passed that women couldn't own property um, but then they machine gunned the protesters and the protest stopped it's two sentences in the book and we turned it into a whole story in the, in the show yeah that was a very powerful scene yeah, and it was shot before, it was written, shot before the women's marches, you know, after Inauguration Day. And then watching it and watching those was terrifying because we had gotten so close to the way those things looked. It was just amazing. So there's there's all of that stuff. But I find it kind of an endlessly fascinating world. It's one of those, first of all, I mean, you've read the book. At the end, you want to strangle her because the book doesn't is is ending because you're so frustrated by the ending. And so... Everybody says, how could this show go on for more than one season? And then on the other hand, they say, when the book ended, I want to kill somebody. So that's what we're doing is, is, is going on. But there's lots of things that are mentioned that are never really explored, like the colonies, like right. you know, what life is like for the, for the ants, what life is like for the Marthas. So all of those, um, but also keeping moving the story forward in a logical way. I mean, there's so many things that I was really interested in not just finding out in a little nugget from Alfred's point of view, which is what you do in the book, but being able to explore it. And the good example is Off Glen. In the book, Off Glen disappears, which is one of my favorite moments in the book, and I really was glad to put it into the, it was in the second episode. That was also a great voiceover moment with her, oh fuck. Well, the funniest part of that, it wasn't voiceover. Um, It was stage direction. The, the last piece of stage direction was fuck, <laughs> because it's like, oh, shit. And when Lizzie read the script and she got to the end and she said, oh, fuck. And then she turned the page and that's what it said at the end. And so we decided to actually have her say it out loud. Um, and it is. It's really funny because it does encapsulate the emotional moment really, really well. In the book, Offred is told that Offred kills herself. We don't know if she did, but she's told. But we, I was very interested in seeing what the criminal justice system looked like for women which turned out to be amazing. I was really interested to see what punishment was like. You know, what is it like to be convicted of a biblical crime? And I don't know if you noticed, but Alexis doesn't speak in that episode. She doesn't have a single line. She's wearing a muzzle most of the time, which, just to make you feel better, was made to be as comfortable as possible. And she (laughs) could totally talk with it on, and she was wearing it between takes and stuff like that. And she was talking like this. (laughs) But it did not work to keep her quiet. But it looked good. Um, It did. It looked really scary. But she, you kind of want that role to go to someone who really has the America's sweetheart feeling about them. Because then, you know, it's even more kind of gut-wrenching. Not that I need to make it more gut-wrenching. Well, it worked. It worked. (laughs) (laughs) And that ending was a, a tough sell. Really? Yeah, because me, I watched that with um, with my friend, and we both turned to each other, and we were like, did they just circumcise her? And I was like, I think so. 
and we just kind of sat there in silence for like 15 and seconds. And we don't show anything. Right. And we don't say anything. No. It's so so when when I said we were going to do it, they were like on camera. I was like, okay, no, yeah. But it happens all over the world every day. It just doesn't happen to white girls who look like Rory Gilmore. So once they knew that it wasn't going to happen on camera, they were more. No, they no? were terrified. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we were terrified, but it seemed like like. It seemed like the logical thing for Gilead to do. Right. I mean, the way that they talk about it to her, even in the episode, is we're saving you. We're, you have an uncontrollable urge. We're going to take that away. We're going to make your life so much easier, which is a lot of the underpinning of why it's done traditionally to young girls is to take away their, you know, an unbridled sexual desire, you know, to keep them from being lascivious. And so here, she's a gay woman. They don't want her to be attracted to women. So they just kind of think, oh, we're going to do her this favor. We, you know, we're not going to execute her. We're going to be nice. Because she's fertile. Because she's fertile, yes. They still need her for that. They still need her but for that. But she doesn't need to enjoy any part of the process. Well, I don't think she did anyway. Well, uh, but, no, you're exactly right. It doesn't, as Moira says in the pilot, we're breeding stock. So you don't need eyes for that. You know, there's a girl later, we'll see a, a, a lovely woman from Canada who we used a few times who, who had an arm amputated. Um, you know, people with burns and scars and all sorts of ways that they've punished them because it doesn't matter. You know, you're, you're, you're a walking womb or as one of our brilliant writers said, vagina furniture. Um, well, on that pleasant note, yeah, thank you so much for, for not only being here today, but for making this amazing show and I can't wait for the world to see it and to see more episodes and where it goes from here. And uh, Great. Well, thank you so much. This thank was such you. a pleasure. And that was Bruce Miller of The Handmaid's Tale. You can find new episodes of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. If you're a fan of showrunners, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're getting podcasts these days. Our show is produced by Steve Parkhurst and special thanks this week to Ali Janini. We'll be back one week from now with the showrunners of American Gods, a new show on stars. Until then, keep binging. 